0: Good afternoon, and welcome to our latest conversation with festival artists, presented by the Seattle Chamber Music Society. I'm Dave Beck with listener-supported classical King FM in Seattle at 98.1. I'm a cellist, Seattle Chamber Music Society enthusiast, and co-producer with the SCMS team of the series of conversations with society artists, which we record and share via podcasts. We are coming to you on. Thursday, January 23rd, 2014, as the Winter Festival concerts from the Seattle Chamber of Music Society are just about to get underway. They begin tomorrow night, January 24th, and continue through February 2nd in the Nordstrom Recital Hall at Benaroya Hall here in Seattle. We're joined today by a live audience in our little podcast den here, and that is the space that we call Sound Bridge in Benaroya Hall. So. Welcome to all of you who are here, and uh, welcome wherever and however you happen to be joining us. I'm hosting the uh, first SCMS podcast today since I began working last September at Classical King FM. For the previous 28 years, I was at another wonderful listener supported public radio station, KUOW, in Seattle, so I keep it in the public radio family still. And I want to thank our listeners, supporters, and our collaborators with the Seattle Chamber Music Society. We're able to broadcast all seven of the Winter Festival concerts this year, and you can find out about and stream those broadcasts at king.org. Our guest this time on the podcast is a longtime favorite of Seattle music lovers. Ida Levin will be featured during this Winter Festival in a Bartok violin sonata, also as the first violinist in this cycle of Tchaikovsky string quartets which is continuing here at the Seattle Chamber Music Society. She's also playing at Tetseto by Antonin Vorjak. And in briefly chatting with Ida, listening to her performances and recordings over the years, reading more about her path, I'm really struck by the mentors that she's had along the way. Amazing uh, composers and violinists and impresarios and all sorts of, of great people, many of them no longer with us. So we're going to kind of um, delve into some of those stories. but. Uh, first of all, let's let's welcome Ida Levin to our. Thank
1: our I, you. I've
0: I've so enjoyed your performances. Going back to your appearances in Seattle with the Mendelssohn Quartet and the Santa Fe Festival residencies.
2: Yes, indeed.
0: When did you start playing um, under the the banner of the Seattle Chamber Music Society?
2: Before, long before I joined the Mendelssohn Quartet, actually. I think I was here from the fourth year of the festival. Was that eighty three? I think that's. 82, 83, it, 80 No, I was here before, 85. I think I was here at, in 83. So, so whatever so year that was, maybe here too. <laughs> very,
0: 83 very or 84,
2: something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: what's what what drew you here in the first place? How did you get the invitation?
2: Well, Toby uh, was in New York and I think this is how it happened. I think Toby was in New York and came to the barge, came to barge music, Mm -hmm. and I was playing, and she heard me play there and invited me. So that's, I think, how we met. We met on the barge, I believe.
0: So it it was a little smaller operation back in those days.
2: It was, it was. Um, And we were based out of UW. We did all of our rehearsals there, and then we would walk down onto the Ave and eat at Sahara, as we called it, every day, and have our (laughs) falafel and our hummus plates. And we were were still doing, though, I think we were already doing... Three concerts a week, as I remember. Mm-hmm. I think we were already at the Monday, Wednesday, Friday format. Yeah, yeah, and everybody played one piece, and we had the recitals already, as I remember. But yeah, we had a smaller group of people. I remember having time to play tennis. I don't know how we did that. I remember we used to go off and we would be d- done, and we'd walk across to the tennis courts at UW and play tennis on our off hours.
0: <laughs> Not so much tennis anymore. Or?
2: Not so much tennis. No, I haven't played tennis in years. Yeah. But,
0: um, but but obviously a you know a thirty year bond with this city and the, the community around the uh, festival? Yeah,
2: it's been wonderful for me. I mean, I'm a Westerner anyway. I grew up in California. so. Um, but one of the things that I think so many of us artists who've come back for years and years here um, that's happened over the time is that we've we gotten to be very close friends with people with whom we were put up um, because we've always been privately housed here. We've never been in in hotels. That was always part of the from the very beginning that toby asked people to please house an artist and so many of us have developed lasting friendships you know on the level of you know family relationships yeah. people now that have known us and seen our children grow and it's uh so i feel really deep ties in this community actually mm-hmm.
0: yeah tell me a little bit about uh, about your origin story if you don't mind uh, you say los angeles area is where you yes grew up. i
2: grew up in santa Monica, which is where i am again living for mm-hmm. about the last um, fourteen years. I, I lived in New York for 22 years. I went to Juilliard um, after high school, and but kind of young, at 15 and a half, I went to Juilliard, and I was in New York then. Uh, after I got my degrees at Juilliard, I stayed, and I was in New York for 22 years. Came back to California in 2000, just relocated. Gotten to the point in my life that I thought I don't need to live in New York anymore. In my for, various family reasons. My mom had passed away. I wanted to be closer to my father. So moved back to California, and I've been there ever since. So Mm -hmm. I'm just down the road.
0: So a violin in your hands at age three?
2: Three and a half, yes. Apparently, I asked to start violin when I was two and a half, and my parents ignored me for a year. And I mean, I'd seen them. I knew what they were. We had a lot of music always in the house. I was taken to children's concerts. We had a piano and a guitar. And a recorder and we listened to the Texaco Opera broadcasts every Saturday always with my grandparents and so I was exposed to music and my mother had an amazing coloratura soprano voice actually which and she continued to sing till I was about 6 or 7 so she sang throughout right. her pregnancy with me a lot of, we've often thought maybe uh. that's why I went for the for the higher timbreed instrument <laughs> for the violin over a different one but for whatever reason I was obsessed with the idea of the violin I never wanted to play another instrument
0: was, and she, after, was she a professional musician professional musician she
2: part? wasn't she was trained in opera and theater arts and she did some local performing like with a couple of local choirs and she would sometimes do a you know a small solo or something but she she really didn't um, uh, have that drive to be a big performer and then when I came along it just you know obviously took a lot of her time mm-hmm. and so no but she always sang and we always sang around the piano you know we would after dinner you know my I studied the piano along the way. We would sing. My parents, my dad would play the piano. They would sing, she would sing Gershwin and Cole Porter and Kern. And, and, wow. and then she would, as I got better on the piano, we would we would do Schumann leader, And I would try to accompany <laughs> her on the piano. And believe me, I'm not a very good pianist. But I think yeah. I was a better pianist when I was about nine. Yeah.
0: Well, Los Angeles seems to me such a fascinating place for, um, for serious musicians in terms of you know, all the studio players and their... Interesting backgrounds and um, you know the connection to, to Europe after the Second World War. All the musicians coming. Well, in. what, indeed, yeah. yeah.
2: Well, it's interesting. It's what's been interesting for me is to see how much LA has changed since I was born and raised there in the '60s, and and the studio scene has changed a lot. Yeah. As, as the people, I actually don't do studio work, but I know many people who do, and there's been a lot of concern because the work actually has been drying up for the studio musicians and and all of the, you know the industry as we call it with the capital I, you know, the film industry. Um, the industry has learned that it's much more fiscally pragmatic actually to go to Sofia, Bulgaria or to Poland somewhere and hire a symphony and fly over the director and the composer and record the music there and bring it back because, uh, because it's much more expensive to stay in LA and hire local people. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot, of, um, a lot of change over the years. But it's, it's interesting you mentioned, yeah, all of the, the, especially the Jewish refugee composers who ended up there, musicians and composers who ended up there um, in the 40s, late 30s into the 40s um, were very much in on the sort of uh, on our radar as i was growing up as a music student because my teacher was friends with so many of these people with ernst Toch, um with you know corngold i grew up with corngold's uh, uh, granddaughter katie studied with the same teacher as i did she's violinist she lives in portland um and the various family members of these composers, and and uh, my teacher knew them very well. My teacher, Manuel Kompinski So I met a lot of these people. You know, of course, Piatigorsky was there too, and Heifetz, and um, you know, you'd go to the Hollywood Bowl, and you'd see Jack Benny over there sitting with Piatigorsky in a box, and mm-hmm. it was um, it was it was kind of a, a great time to grow up. And I I have um, my own chamber music series that I'm directing now in L.A., and we actually our next concert in February is all going to be music by the um, Jewish refugee composers who ended up in LA. We're doing a piece of Toch. We're doing a piece of Louis Gruenberg Who wrote very famously a violin concerto for Heifetz and the Emperor Jones opera? And I grew up with his family in fact very very close friends with his daughter and her husband wow. and his widow and her kids In fact, I just saw them in Monterey a couple of weeks ago. We met up on vacation yeah. together So and we're doing Korn Gold, the string sextet so.
0: how, how old were you when you played with the Los Angeles Philharmonic? Ten. Ten years old. What did you play?
2: I played the first movement of the Mozart D major concerto, and it was a competition. I entered. I was nine when I entered the competition. My teacher thought it would be good experience for me. It was a kind of, you know, they were looking for young people to play on a Saturday, you know, on a Saturday young people's concert series, you know, with the symphony. And everybody was shocked when I won. I mean, there were four winners. Me and my friend Helen, who was a pianist actually, and she and I played trios together for you. She also won. We all played on the same concert. And a young boy who played the tuba. He was, (laughs) he was. 11 and he mm-hmm. played the tuba like unbelievably.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to um jump ahead here. and we'll, I want to play some music um eventually uh that goes back to your association with the Marlboro uh musicians and festival. Uh, it was Marlboro found just sort of some background uh, because it's one of those names Marlboro. And we you know we say it in such a hallowed way, and, <laughs> but to, for people to really understand what it is, it, I mean, it was founded by. Rudolf Serkin in rural Vermont in nineteen fifty one. It was
2: founded by Rudolf Serkin along with Adolf Busch, Hermann mm-hmm. Busch. Adolf Busch, the violinist, the great violinist, was also Mr. Serkin's father-in-law. He's, he was his wife, Irena was Adolf Busch's daughter. Hermann Busch and the famous flutist, Marcel Moise, the brilliant French flutist, so it was, and um, Louis Honiger, um, Honiger, the composer Honiger's daughter, oh, Honiger's okay. Son, rather, and um, his wife Blanche. So it was sort of all of them who came to Vermont um, and uh, yeah, they started this in, what are we, in our 60-something year now, 64th, mm-hmm. I think. And um, the idea being that it should be an idyllic kind of uh, place to get away from the world and really focus on in-depth study of the great chamber music repertoire without the pressure associated with typical concert touring where you've got a concert on tuesday and a concert on thursday and a concert on saturday and you've got this program and that program and that this was really supposed to give you the time and in a bucolic setting away from you know from the noises of the of the big city to in fact mr sirkin lived up there in vermont so he his uh and um that you could really just just have time to to sink in and delve into the music, and if you felt that it was ready for performance, you would perform it, and if you didn't, you didn't perform it. That it was about the process. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, there's there's an interesting quote on their website by probably one of the founders, but it's it's like the, you know time is the artist's greatest asset. It's just to, to be able to have that sense of not being harried and rushed, and, and uh...
2: well, and that's the commodity that becomes less and less available to us, especially as you know modes of transportation have become ever, ever more efficient and were able to get places quicker. And if you think about, you know, before air travel was as big as it was, concert musicians were touring by train, they would have often a week be- between concerts in the United States. I mean, if you had to travel to the Midwest, even from the, you know, you have three, four days between concerts on a train. I mean, now you, you play in New York one night, you're in Chicago the next night, you're in Seattle the next night, you're in Phoenix the next day it's uh, it's so possible to do that and mm-hmm. it doesn't give you breathing
0: space mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, when did you, did you get invited there or how did you even come
2: there? Oh, you have to audition no yeah. I no, okay. no I auditioned yeah I I went my first summer I was 18 and I auditioned and it was it's a rigorous audition there's a lot of uh, uh, there's uh, you have to bring in your solo repertoire but also two chamber music works which they ask you to prepare and I mean I remember the year I auditioned you know it was Bartok Sixth Quartet, and I honestly can't remember the other piece now, but but, but as you learned in your audition, you know, Felix Gallagher, my teacher, or, or um, uh, Dave Sawyer, or one of the people, whoever was running your audition, or Misha Schneider, you know, they would, they weren't asking for kind of the big violin solo that you'd practice 5,000 times in the last movement. they turned to the third movement where there was this really secondary but tricky rhythmic passage <laughs> to see if you'd gotten that one nailed or not. Mm-hmm. And they knew if you didn't. And if you didn't, you weren't gonna get in. And I, I you know, I was my I was studying with Felix Gallimere at the time. I knew all these guys from having done the New York String Orchestra seminar at Christmas time. But I knew if I didn't ace that audition, they would not let me in. Mm-hmm. It was it was scary that audition. So yeah, so I went when I was 18 and then I went back for four summers. Yeah. And I was so fortunate to work with um with Mr Serkin a lot, with Felix Gallimere, with um, with Misha Schneider you know, to get to watch Moise work with the wind players. I didn't get to work with him, you know, personally. And um, um, Horshavsky was there. I mean, we, it was an amazing time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How did it come, uh, you know, one of the famous things in your biography is playing at the White House with, with Rudolf Serkin. Yeah. Tell me the story of how that how came that happened.
2: How that happened. Well, uh, this was under the, during the first Reagan administration. And um, I believe it was Nancy Reagan's idea to bring, again, uh, classical music into the White House, and, well music in general, but to bring some cultural, um, uh, musical presence in the house itself and um, so they developed this series called In Performance at the White House where the idea was that, it, uh, that an established older artist would introduce a young American artist, or a young American musician um, and Mr. Serkin was asked to be in the first performance and you know at the time he had a few students that he was teaching he always had a few students he was teaching in those years. He had finished teaching at Curtis, but he had students who studied with him privately and lived up in Vermont um, in a house down near where, where his farm was. And he felt that it would be very bad form for him to choose amongst his students and create very bad blood if he chose one of his four students over the other three. So he decided he should go in a different direction, pick a different instrumentalist, and I, I got wow. lucky.
0: <laughs> what, what did you play?
2: We did the Schubert Rondo brilliant, the B minor Rondo Brillant together. And Mr. Sirkin played the Moonlight Sonata on that performance. And I did the Izai third solo sonata. Wow! So. wow.
0: Memories of uh, the receiving line with the. With the
2: it was great. It was, it was, I was talking about this with somebody yesterday. I got to go there twice because um, they flew. They flew me down for um, a luncheon that was announcing this series that was going to be, because it was also broadcast on PBS. It was filmed, and they filmed backstories on everybody and everything. So um, they flew me down for lunch in the fall um, sometime. The concert was November. In fact, the concert was November 22nd, I remember, because it was JFK Day. And um, uh, Reagan spoke about that and and referenced that in his speech at the concert. But it was pretty amazing. Yeah, I met, you know, I mean, uh, meeting the president, I mean, uh, you know, he and Nancy Reagan at the time, of course, I mean, of course, they were Californians and they they, they had a home in Pacific Palisades and I grew up in Santa Monica. So that was sort of where our conversation went while we were waiting to perform. Um, there's a rule that the, the the White House, for security purposes, nobody can enter a room after the president. He has to be the last person in the room. So he can't be seated and then you can't, the performers cannot walk in. The performers already have to be in there. Hmm. So it was sort of, we were the last three waiting to go in, Mr. sirkin and, and and President Reagan and I, and we were all in this room just kind of waiting and waiting. And he was very personable, very nice chatting about. We chatted about the west side of LA and I was very impressed with him. It was. Only a few months after the um, uh, the assassination attempt, oh, actually, and right. he'd yeah, been shot. Early, early and I was yeah. so struck by his vitality, and oh. by you know, you just would never even imagine this that this had happened. He I mean, was just vital and witty, and it was it was it was a it was an experience. It was great.
0: I have um, some music I want to share. Again, this ties back to Marlboro and um, your experiences there. It's um, it's a piece of music that was composed in two thousand two by Leon Kirchner, and it's kind of a sad theme today that a, a number of these people are not around anymore. He uh, He's passed away uh, in 2009. His um, students included John Adams. He was a, a Pulitzer Prize winner, taught at Harvard and, and Juilliard. Uh, how did th- this piece um, come about? And again, it very rooted in your experience at Marlborough.
2: Yeah, well, it was interesting. Um, F- Felix Gallimere, who was my teacher, um, Passed away in uh, 1999, and uh, as his family members were going through his belongings and 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 everything, and through they found in his violin case this little scrap of music written on um, like a, a little piece of paper, a paper napkin almost, or something. And um, Leon had signed it. Leon Kirshner had signed it, and it was just a few bars of music or something. And I think that his nephew, some of his nephew or niece contacted Leon and said, we found this in Felix's case. What's the story? backstory?" story. Apparently, Felix had been asking Leon Kirchner for years to write a piece for him. He said, you know, write me a piece. Write me a sonata. I want a sonata, a piece for violin and piano. And Leon had never gotten around to it and, and I guess another... Another year came around and they were probably sitting in the dining hall at Marlboro. and Felix said, so when are you going to write me that piece already? And Leon just grabbed a napkin or something and scribbled down some music and handed it to Felix and said, here it is. (laughs) And so Felix, though, kept this fragment of music. I have it, actually. I have it on a, his nephew um, photographed it. I have it as a JPEG on my computer. Um, And his uh, nieces and nephews got together, and they'd wanted to commission a piece in his in Felix's memory, so they asked Leon to please write this piece. And um, uh, Jeremy Denk and I were asked to to do it. I was, you know, student of Felix for years, very close to him. I was very touched to be able to do that. Yeah. And so we got to work very intensively with Leon and the piece. It was it was an incredible experience. It was my first time working with Leon. I'd met him and I'd heard his music, but. Um, really spent a lot of time, it was great, really getting to know him. and um, uh, We worked together on it in New York, we worked together on it in Vermont then, and we did the premiere in Marlboro that summer of 2002, and we recorded it that same summer, and that's the recording probably that we yeah. have well, here. Yeah, we'll, we'll
0: listen to some of I, a little bit more about Felix uh, Galimir. He was very um, much a champion of Schoenberg and Berg and, and yeah. Weber. I, the, the story that I understand is that he had uh, won a position in the Vienna Philharmonic, but um, with the with the Nazi takeover, he, he he left. Ended up being recruited by Toscanini to play in the NBC Symphony. Well, yes.
2: Well, the the Gallimere, Felix and his sisters who had a string quartet, mm-hmm. and in fact, that's how they 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 worked closely with the second Viennese composers on the string quartets, on with Berg on the Lyric Suite, with Ravel. They also worked with Ravel on the Ravel String Quartet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Ravel, Berg, Schoenberg, I mean, Felix was a huge exponent, and they knew these. These composers very very well. Uh, They actually left in thirty two or thirty three and went to Palestine, um, and played in the the Israel the first you know I forget what they called it it was the Palestine Symphony or something that Mm -hmm. symphony that Toscanini conducted there and it was in Palestine that that in, in modern day Israel that that. Uh, he got to, that Felix got to know Toscanini, and Toscanini said, "Come to New York. You know, I have a job for you in NBC Symphony." So he ended up making the move, and his sisters also. They all, all the whole family then came to the states. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Felix's sister Adrian was married to Louis Krasner, who was also you know who did the premiere of the Schoenberg Violin Concerto. An amazing, amazing musician and violinist. And he and Felix's sister, his wife, lived in from in uh, Boston and taught. Louis taught in the Boston area for years.
0: So you you worked with Felix mainly at, at Marlboro or at or Juilliard where? also at Juilliard. I, Juilliard okay.
2: Yeah, at Juilliard. Felix was my officially my chamber music teacher. So I played my sonatas, anything that wasn't a concerto. I played for Felix, and I had chamber groups with friends. We put together trios and this and that. So I had him, you know, lesson was with him every week. Mm-hmm. Um, at Juilliard for five years. And then at Marlborough, of course, you know, you work where you play together with your teachers. That's our whole thing right. there. And Felix played only second violin. You know, I played Bartok quartets with him. My first Berg experience was with him playing the Opus 3 quartet, you know, and he was playing second violin and learning this piece from the inside out with him playing next to
0: me. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary. Yeah. Well, let me, let me play the opening moment or so of this uh, 2002 duo. Um, and the, the thing that strikes me first of all and this is just how exquisitely in tune these double stops are i mean this is a technically <laughs> demanding piece among, among little,
2: it has its awkward moments yeah violinistically
0: yeah well yeah. um we'll get some more comments out of it let's let's yeah. hear it <laughs> those opening bars tell us about his voice and approach as a composer
2: you know it's it's interesting leon's writing i feel is so um he has a harmonic language which which you kind of associate with him but it's hard to define it's really hard to define that but there, there's sort of these intervallic um sort of kernels that are at the beginning of this piece run throughout it they're sort of it's a sort of a leitmotif with these um uh with these perfect fourths, actually, that's sort mm-hmm. of that's sort of a, a subtext um, harmonically that runs through the piece. Um, you know, I always feel that listening, to his music, it, it 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 both, both as a listener, it it sounds like something that's being improvised, and yet it's very through composed and thoroughly composed, and he is after ex- a tremendous amount of freedom in the. In the actual performance practice, so but it's it's I don't know how to describe it it's sort of expository in a way it's hard to verbalize it that um, uh, that's almost like a stream of consciousness you know
0: right yeah
2: and uh, in this particular case having known because Leon of course having been been colleagues and friends with Felix for so many years wanted to instill in the piece some homage to the Second Venice School and to Felix's connection with it in fact there is a Piero Lunaire quote. Uh, later on in the piece, as a brief one bar of of Pierre Lunaire, At the very end of the piece, to me, becomes very um, more and more vienerish, more and more kind of um, uh, I don't know how to put it, almost like a a nostalgic remembrance of uh, Vienna before the dark times mm. when 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 everything was roses and waltzing, mm-hmm. um but with a kind of a Cloud over it, and yeah. and I think at the end of the piece has an aspect of this. There are moments that are waltz-like, and moments that are it's that kind. That part of Vienna is incorporated in the piece. The, you know, the pre, you know, the, the first Viennese school Vienna, as well as the second Viennese school Vienna, and and yet it's Leon Kirchner's voice clearly yeah. throughout the entire piece as well. So.
0: I, in the, there's lovely uh, liner notes for this bridge recording that this is featured on, and. Uh, uh, there's there's stories of, of you working with him and him just saying it always has to be more beautiful more beautiful yes yeah let me let me play this section because I, I just loved the just the the, the beauty of, of of the playing here and and we'll talk a little bit more about that Maybe in the, the most lyrical parts of that—that's that that Viennese quality that you're talking about. There's something that's just um, so beautiful and so expressive.
2: Yes, yeah. And uh, what I loved about working with Leon, having worked with a gamut of composers in my life, is sometimes you find—you know—you find yourself in different situations. They're different people, different personalities. But um, the working process with Leon, I felt helped take my own expressivity on the instrument to a higher level, and it was wonderful to have that experience through working with a composer. Mm-hmm. And you know, so often you feel like you're just trying to put yourself at the service of what they're after in their in their piece. And some composers are very strict about you know wanting to be a certain way. Other composers, I remember um, being so affected by uh, by uh, Ned Roram, who I've worked with a lot, by Ned's Ned saying that he finds it so uh, flattering when instrumentalists interpret his music. He, mm. he he loves nothing more than that because it's so meaningful to him that that an instrumentalist can play this and, and have their own uh, um, reaction to it and their own uh, spirit of how they want to express it. And he loves that and he embraces that. Not all composers do. Some of them really have a very specific idea of how they want it to be. And with Leon, it was almost, you know, what you have almost, you know, the combination of expressing his music but what you would also get from... The best teachers you had in your life, which was somebody who was bringing out the best in you and trying to heighten that and who who was who was sort of empowering you to to bring more of yourself out through the piece. Hmm. and and to have that experience with a composer, it was it was really, very moving, and it was very um, touching. and I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. I mean, and to get to know Leon as a person, it was just it was a wonderful experience it, it does
0: another phrase was was and maybe you've used this already stream of consciousness mm. um that that it, it's just this you know spontaneous outpouring and um but for for such a meticulously crafted piece to, to have yes. that it, it is as kind of the marvel of I'm, I'm just getting to know this but i you know i every time i hear it it's uh i'm just struck by how uh, spontaneous it sounds
2: yes, and yet it has a very specific structure, in fact, the piece, yeah. and it's 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 kind of an ABA plus code of form and you know but uh, that's irrelevant it's a it's a uh, I think it's a piece with a, a tremendous amount of contrast and a tremendous amount of warmth mm-hmm. in it and I think what 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 the listeners so often fear in in contemporary, whatever you want to call it contemporary music is um, that they'll be left. Untouched, and I think it's hard. I think it's hard to be left untouched by this piece. Mm-hmm. That you feel th- this heart that with Leon was just enormous. Yeah.
0: Um, no, again, it's lovely to read yeah. the notes because you just you talk about at at every phase. You know, playing it for the for the people at Marlborough, working with Jeremy, working with Leon Kishner. More. You you fell more and more in love with the piece.
2: We did. We did. And I know Jeremy also would say the same thing. I think we both uh, just were. Yeah, just passionate about this piece, um, and at the at the um, performance, of course, all of Felix's family was there, all of his nieces and nephews. It was very emotional. I mean, yeah. I sort of, you know, we all kind of had a bit of a cry afterwards because um, uh, Felix was the one missing from the from the hall that night, but he was, you know, very much there in spirit. And Leon, I think Leon, really wrote his love for Felix um, into this piece. Yeah
0: well i one more little little selection mm. from it here this just strikes me and we, you know we're talking about you, you do you do hear the complexity here that's all the different you know the the pizzicato and the and the just the interplay between the instruments it strikes me of, of, of this particular passage <laughs> to a process of learning all that 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 he was making changes to the very end
2: he was and I have to say he made some changes after we made this recording so there's actually a few things a few notes that he changed huh. post recording that we actually do differently in performance
0: so this premiered at Marlboro in uh, the summer of 2002 what's what happened to it after that?
2: After that, actually, we, were, we for, were fortunate to have a lot of performances of it. In fact, we gave its West Coast premiere here at the Seattle Chamber Music Festival in the summer of 2003, I think it was. Um, Jeremy and I, was, so we, it was, and then we actually did it on a Marlboro tour that where we had nine concerts in the Northeast. You know, we played it in Philly, and uh, we played it in Boston, in Washington, D.C., so it got a lot of playing. We did another concert that was only of Leon's works at the Gardner Museum, I remember, in Boston. Um, that was a, a whole separate thing. So it, actually, we played it quite a bit, and um, I'm looking forward to, I'm hoping to try to get it onto my series in L.A., because mm-hmm. it actually it hasn't had an L.A. performance, and uh, it's tricky between Jeremy's schedule, and um, we're trying to get that worked out. But, you know, Leon, of course, had huge roots in L.A., and before he died, he'd been really talking for the last couple of years about wanting to come out and sort of walk walk in the park in Santa Monica again on the bluffs and sort of see it because he he had lots of connections in LA he was at UCLA for years um alongside Schoenberg and teaching and he knew all these guys and he felt he loved LA he felt very connected to the place and we kept trying to plan a visit and um uh you know and uh, unfortunately he never was able to come make that trip um but it was uh yeah, it's 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 I've understood that some other people are out there playing playing it. I've heard I've heard that. I know people have bought bought it from Boozy and Hawks, so mm-hmm. I hope it's getting mm-hmm. some playing, and I'm supposed to do some editing, which I'm sitting on my desk at home, to ah. fix a few things yeah. from the edition. Well, audition, that's
0: often the big question with with new music, is it gets the first performance, and where does it go? But this this is getting getting out there. It's yes,
2: and not yeah. only that, actually, Leon, we wrote the piece also, which he did with a lot of his music. first. He wrote a solo piano version, which I know oh. Jeremy has also, also played. I think Jonathan Biss has played it, so that version also gets done, and it's the same material, and he was thinking even of doing an orchestral version, but he
0: didn't. Mm. So. Well, well, we'll take a big turn here, because um, you've been the anchor violinist in a survey of the three Tchaikovsky string quartets. Yes, that's yes. Uh, we've we've heard the uh, first in 2012 and the third in 2013, and you're you're doing the second quartet of Tchaikovsky mm-hmm. here each time with a, with a different cast. Of I know. I don't think there are, hasn't
2: been anybody in common.
0: I think <laughs> it? yeah. How did? Uh, Tchaikovsky uh, uh, quartets something that you have a lot of experience with or I don't know if they're that well known
2: well actually yes in that we, we when I was in the Mendelssohn quartet we did we performed all three quite a bit at mm-hmm. some point I think we just listened, we just thought let's check these out and we really like them and we did all of them and they don't get done that much I as 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 evinced by the fact that I know Julie Albers had a terrible time trying to even find the music
1: oh, they necessary. didn't have
2: the music shop they didn't have it's really it doesn't seem like I, there are some recordings out there, I think. But um, I think that you know, what's famous is, is, of course, the slow movement of the first quartet, which is done by string orchestra, is the beautiful um, mm-hmm. uh, slow movement with a cello melody. and that's, Everybody does that, but takes it out of the piece to do it. Usually, string orchestras do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, here's a guy who's known for his orchestral writing, but who had this real desire to create smaller works and to try to, I think, challenge himself to do that and to write in a less symphonic way. Um, and he wrote probably more chamber music than most of his other Russian romantic um, colleagues, with the exception of the great Taneyev, of course, who so many of us are mad for, who wrote a ton of great chamber music, and a they lot were, of which has been done here. Yeah,
0: they were. Very close friends. Uh, they to, they yeah. were
2: they were and so he wrote these three quartets. they were in the Opus Eleven, Opus Twenty Two, and Opus Thirty. So they're all you know a few years apart, and it's been it's been fun for me to revisit them because um, I'd had this memory, of my my feelings about the different pieces that have I've completely changed in the course of reading you know revisiting them all in the last year or so and it was something that jimmy ennis wanted to do i think he just had heard them too and thought "Wow, let's 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 have them all be heard mm-hmm. because they don't get done that often mm-hmm. so what, w-
0: what's what's changed or how's your thinking about them evolved? well
2: it's funny I, it's just we're, we're doing the second this week and i had this memory of the second being the most difficult to put together and actually i think the third is the most difficult to put together i think I had this memory that the second had sort of stronger material in some ways. I mean, I don't want to be dissing the piece. It's a wonderful piece. But the third, I just was really captivated sort of recaptivated by the third in particular. Mm-hmm. When we did it last summer, I thought, "Wow, this piece has a lot going on for it." I mean, the the slow movements in all of them are spectacular, but of course, that was a real, you know, calling card for Tchaikovsky was yeah. and the the funeral march in the third quartet is just you know, one of the most moving movements in the chamber music repertoire.
0: Well, since 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 you've referenced it and uh, it's it's the hit tune, let's uh, <laughs> let's listen just a little little bit of this is the the opening of your performance in two thousand twelve of the Entente Cantabile movement. That was July of 2012 when you played that. It was uh, Andrew Han. or Andrew Wan was the second violinist, David Harding viola, Edward Aaron cello with Ida Levin. It's um, beautiful. That was the movement that uh, made Leo Tolstoy cry, according yeah. to Tchaikovsky's diary.
2: Yeah, it's a, I, is it Mark Religioso? I think it's a It's a okay. prayer. I yeah. think it's considered to be a prayer, that movement.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about these great teachers of yours who shaped uh, Tchaikovsky in your imagination most strongly?
2: Oh gosh. Um, I'm not sure I have an answer for that one, actually. It's it's interesting. I mean, I had, you know, the, the teachers that I worked with who had, you know, the biggest influences on me, um, it was interesting, my my, my, my teacher, Shandor Vague, um, who I studied with, great Hungarian violinist and teacher, uh, would talk about the fact that he was, you know, literally just two generations um, removed from Brahms. He studied with with yano Hubai, the great violence who knew Brahms. And so being just literally two generations removed from some of these great composers, or like with Felix Galmir, with Ravel, with Berg, with Schoenberg, Webern, with um, I think that's that 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 certainly and with Mr. Sirkin, who with if you go back with Schnabel and with you you go you have a direct link to beethoven you know and i think that this in some way was is the music that i got the most from you know not to not to make light of tchaikovsky whose whose music i love i don't know you know my family we're all russian jews i've always loved the russian music i love the russian romantics we actually don't do many russian romantics at Marlborough. it's not it, this hmm. isn't music for instance that that mr serkin or that felix Galimir this wasn't their thing, Mr. Serkin, especially. He wasn't big on the Russian Romantics or really the Russian Russian avant-garde. It just wasn't his thing. I, th- I think a lot of a lot of my teachers who were very entrenched more in the Germanic Austro-Hungarian school, in many cases, kind of disdained the Russian Romantic composers. Some of them liked the Russian avant-garde, and the Prokofiev's and the Shostakoviches, but. Um, it was a funny thing and uh, i only learned years later you know after having sometimes i remember bringing in a prokofiev sonata and once in a lesson and felix was just brutal to me in that lesson <laughs> and i remember coming out thinking man i got to get my act together this was i'm i'm just i'm just not getting the job done you know and it was years later that he said to me oh that horrible prokofiev f minor sonata and i said wait a minute you know and i he said oh i hate that piece i said you were so mean to me in that lesson you know like, Twenty years ago, and he said, "Oh yeah, because I hate that piece." I said, "Oh great, thanks." You know, (laughs) and um, you know, I just thought, "Boy, I'm just not practicing enough, and this is just (laughs) not—I'm not understanding." Ah, I hate that music. It was a—it was a surprising thing, and Felix was such—you know—he embraced all kinds of music that other people would just. Think was incomprehensible yeah. and horrible, and you know, and so he was. He fair. had such an evolved, you know, <laughs> he was such an evolved um, musician. It was, it was funny, but the Russian music, which I've always loved. I mean, for me, Prokofiev, uh, Prokofiev Romeo and Juliet for me is one of my, uh, you know, deserted island pieces yes, that I would exactly. take. I, I'm mad for it, and um, and I love Tchaikovsky. I think it's it's beautiful and touching and genuine. I'm mad for Tonea if We were talking. I'm, I know we're planning next year is a Glazunov year. I have that on my radar, and we're going to be programming the quintet on my series. So, I don't know. With Tchaikovsky, I'm not sure. I, you know, I had, uh, you know, certainly studied my my concerto with Dorothy Delay, my Tchaikovsky concerto, mm-hmm. and I did the short pieces and this and that. And and um, I think it's music I always related to and just thought was beautiful. and was always fun to play yeah. and. The,
0: I want to do this um, scherzo from the third string quartet in E-flat minor. This is your 2013 performance, and it's a, it's an upbeat movement, an often very somber quartet, it it, it seems to me. Um, Tchaikovsky composed the third as a tribute to Ferdinand Lahm, who was a colleague and professor at the Moscow Conservatory who died suddenly in 1875. That was a great blow to Tchaikovsky, and this gentleman, Laub, had played premieres in the uh, his first two quartets, and the first two Tchaikovsky mm-hmm. quartets. So um, you're going to, this is a performance that you did with Stephen Rose, Rebecca Alpers, and Brinton Smith. And uh, I was just kind of amused by this movement, actually. That's what you mean when you talk about Tchaikovsky being symphonic, or these Tchaikovsky quartets being symphonic in places. That... Yeah,
2: although the outer movements even more so. But yeah, I think. But but he did have a sense of humor in spite of being, I mean, supposedly kind of somewhat unhappy in his private life. And mm-hmm. um, I think uh, the outer movements are even more symphonic. You'll hear that, I think, in the second quartet this weekend, in particular, in the first movement, which is, you know, you could imagine, you know, entire sections of people sort of playing. Most of the first movement, actually, it's. I mean, I think it was. I think he wanted. I think he embraced the challenge of trying to write more transparent music for for smaller groups, Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, but still, the the sort of nature of uh, the sort of you know breadth of the writing and and uh, it's just naturally more symphonic. I think the middle movements are the most successful in a chamber music context in mm-hmm. a way, in a way. And of course, those who know who know the piano trio, it's just this massive, massive work. And um, and these quartets have their, the, the scherzos are nice because they provide the intimacy that you don't normally get from Tchaikovsky. Yeah. You
0: know, It's interesting. So he wrote these in the early to mid-1870s. So he hadn't written the, the violin concerto yet. It no. was just around the corner.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, is it, is it, violinistic would would yes. you say this yeah it's yeah. all
2: very comfortable and in terms of the quartet I mean there are awkward moments but yeah it's all in terms of the string playing you know beautiful cello writing always yeah. wonderful cello writing um, uh, you know the inner voices get get stuck with some kind of murky um, um, you know duties to kind yeah. of fill things out and yeah, it's yeah. don't always get the the, the nicest nicest cut <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, uh, but he writes, you know, he writes, uh, we, the scherzo in the one that we're doing this weekend, in the second quartet, um, is very much like the ballet music, I would say. You really mm. would hear that, and, you, and it reminds you of um, some of the music from Swan Lakes and the music from the Nutcracker. Yeah. It's more of that ilk. Yeah.
0: Well, when you were talking about the, the sort of Russian soul, I, I chose this last excerpt here from the uh, D Major Quartet just because I think it, it's, it speaks to that here. That sounds like just downright fun.
2: Yeah, it's been really fun doing this, and I I love playing quartets. You know, I was I was in the Mendelssohn Quartet for for um, over seven years, and um, obviously I, I miss playing that repertoire like crazy. You know, the, it's it can be tough to be in a full time quartet, so every opportunity I get to play quartets out in in the world I'm, I, I I jump at. Mm-hmm.
0: So. And provided that uh, Julie has, well, we know she has found her music. Oh, yes, we've been
2: rehearsing for a few days.
0: (laughs) So Julie Albers, the cellist, Richard O'Neill, playing viola, and Benjamin Bellman will be your partners for the second string quartet by Tchaikovsky, and that's on Saturday, January 25th. Just to to wrap up here, uh, you know, in this kind of theme that's run through here today of um, of great mentors and uh, you know and uh, amazing teachers, you're going to be playing the Bartok Second Violin Sonata on Friday night,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you've mentioned Shandor Vajg uh, already, um, who he's a, a direct line to Bartok.
2: Oh yeah, no, he was very close with Bartok and uh, worked on a lot of the repertoire, of the string quartets as well as the sonatas, the rhapsodies. Um, they were good friends. They were colleagues. Uh, uh, Chandrabose was a huge influence on me. He was an amazing teacher. I got a tremendous amount from him, um, and the the insights on working on Bartok with him. I worked on the sonata with him. I worked on both of the sonatas with him, um, and uh, a couple of the string quartets. Uh, is this, you know, is this understanding of the idiom? Uh, of the folk music that, that Bartók, the Magyar folk music, the, 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 the music that Bartók had gone and recorded, of course, which everybody knows out in the hinterlands there in Hungary, that he would go with his recorder and, and, and with his uh, kind of phonograph thing and record these just country melodies and dances and rhythms, as the rhythm is so key in doing this kind of music. And that was something I got from Vague that I just didn't, uh, in a different way than from anybody else, was just understanding the um, where the emphases um, Are on these things and what the character is, and that it's it's uh, of course that Bartok took this and combined it with 20th century harmony and was able to have his own voice while communicating this history of Hungarian folk hmm. aesthetic is extraordinary and it's it's an it's an amazing piece. It's um, Vague was was an incredible teacher and he you know things that he imparted to all of us. Who were studying with him that you know you wouldn't have known it. One of the things we string players run into when we play Bartok, string players in particular, are metronome markings that seem completely impossible. That are very very fast. Bartok puts metronome markings, and you you try to do them in a quartet, and you you know I mean it's you know maybe even if you could accomplish it, it was it would just sound like mush to the listener kind of thing. And and I remember playing um, having lessons on the first string quartet, which I think is also being done next week, I think. Um, I think uh, the, Ennis the Ennis quartet is doing, is doing yeah. the first quartet next week. Um, is the fact that when you when you look at the music of the first quartet, there are actually two sets of metronome markings on all the movements. There's one that's there, and then there's another one that's faster that's in parentheses right after it. And I remember for years wondering, you know, having done that piece as a teenager and thinking, "Hmm, what's that about anyway?" You know, and then you would we would try them both and say, "Oh, my God, these fast ones are impossible." And and I remember years later, Vague saying, oh yes, you know, when we first played this piece, and he brought us the music, and we said, well, this isn't is possible. We have string crossings. We have to get ourselves from here to there. You worked all this out at the piano, Bela Bartok, and we cannot accomplish this on string instruments with the kind of clarity that it, that the character requires. Um, you know. And, and Bartok sort of grudgingly put these new slower metronome markings in, but he couldn't bring himself to completely take out the original ones, because he thought, maybe sometime in the future, you know? (laughs) somebody. This is really how I want this this movement to go. And so there's the second set of metronome marks that just sits there, you know, in the hopes that it sort of, it will, and and probably that very same thing will happen over the years. But, you know, it was Vague who said, oh, yes, we said to him, and then he changed them. And, you know, these are moments that you have with your teachers that are just...
0: Said, yeah. You know yeah what I mean Bartok said you know coming straight straight from the person who played the quartet for the first time. Exactly it's amazing. yeah Well let me wrap up with um, you know you've you talked about a, a surrogate grandfather in Felix mm. and Felix Scalamir and I, I know the this is the first podcast that we've done and the first um, festival since the passing of the founding artistic director of the Seattle Chamber Music Society uh, Toby Sachs last summer. And let me just say, I'm sorry for your loss, uh, because she was she was a friend and a teacher of mine, and I think we're all still reeling from that. But yeah. let me Thank just you. just ask you, um, you know, when when you when you lose someone, we always think to ourselves, how do how do we carry that spirit and legacy forward? And um, do, do you do you have an answer to that? About you know, how do you kind of live life with, with Toby Sachs kind of, you know, in your mind and heart?
2: You know what, uh, I, I was so fortunate that over the years, I mean, we also became very, very close friends. I mean, Toby was like a member of my family and um, I think about her all the time. I, you know, my son grew up knowing her very well. He's almost, he's just turned eight and um, I know she had an impression on his life and that, that's very meaningful to me and he talks about her and and it's, it's, you know, I, I was, I've, I've, I find myself sometimes having imaginary conversations with her. And her birthday was last week, and my birthday is next week. And we always called each other, and we're not going to be having our birthday conversations this year. And I, I've been thinking about her a lot. I think, you know, being here, uh, the best way to honor her is to, you know, go forward and do terrific performances of great music, and and we hope touch people with our performances mm-hmm. and, and enhance their, their days and their lives in a positive way, which is, which is the point of it all, and that's what Toby wanted to create when she created yeah. um, and the, the festival. And that those of us who are here also as colleagues playing together have a kinship that's also her legacy. I mean, when, when I was here in October for the memorial service that we did, um, the concert, so many of us looked around at each other, and these are many people who are some of the closest friends in my life, other of the musicians who, and, and we met because of Toby. So there are other people in my life who I never would have known if not for Toby bringing us together, musically and personally, people who I'm incre- incredibly close with. Um, uh, so I'm so grateful my life was completely changed by meeting her at the barge that, <laughs> that day. And... Um, we were talking about this last night. You know, Toby was a person who connected with other people. She wasn't a person that people met and forgot. You know, to, or couldn't remember who she was because she was someone who would immediately connect with the person she was talking to. She wasn't looking around the room. She wasn't. She had an ability to sort of see the person that she was talking to and appreciate them on the level of who they were. And I know that in my case, I know. You know, you, you only have a handful of people in your life who feel really know you on a certain level. You know, and Toby was one of those people, and it's, you can't get that back. It's just, it's missing. But, um, uh, you know, she has a beautiful grandson and beautiful kids, and um, and then a lot of us, there's just a lot of love around the festival and around the house this week, and that's the best way we can honor her, yeah. I think. And a lot of good food and eating, and that's it's all <laughs> part of the part part of what it's supposed to be. Yeah, so. absolutely.
0: Ida Levin, thanks so much for your time today and uh, all your re- appearances here over the years. And we'll look forward to the Vorjak and Bartok and uh, all the music that Tchaikovsky, of course, all the music you're going to play. So let's thank Ida for, for being here this afternoon.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So that brings this latest classical conversation, gathering, and podcast to an end. You can find this program and our entire series of podcasts online at seattlechambermusic.org and also get your tickets and other information about the Winter Festival at that site. Festival starts tomorrow, January 24th and continues through February 2nd in Benaroya Hall where we're podcasting today. Our next podcast session is one week from today, Thursday, January 30th at noon with Anna Polanski here at Soundbridge. And we will again have all uh, seven live broadcasts of the Winter Festival on listener-supported classical King FM at 98.1 and online at king.org. James Ennis is the artistic director for Seattle Chamber Music Society. Connie Cooper, the executive director. Our engineer is Bill Levy. These programs are produced by me and Jeremy Jolly, the uh, Director of Education Programs and Operations. I'm Dave Beck from listener-supported classical King FM in Seattle at 98.1, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much.